0: Thank you, worship team. Thanks, Samantha. That was awesome. Appreciate that. Peter, you got that for me? Thank you, brother. Well, hey, again, good morning, friends. A couple weeks ago, my family and I had uh, an opportunity to uh, go on vacation, and we were up in Door County, Wisconsin which is uh, the peninsula that shoots north up into into Lake Michigan, just north of Green Bay. Beautiful area. If you've never been to Door County, highly recommend it. Great place. Uh, On the tail end of our vacation, we had a really neat opportunity. Thursday night of last week, I was invited to speak for the Seattle Seahawks football team for their team chapel the night before they were playing the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field. And so that was a really cool experience. Got to uh, share the gospel with the Seahawks and a uh, great group of believers on that team. And then uh, the next day, we spent all day Friday, our family, uh, just walking around Lambeau Field, enjoying the tailgating atmosphere. And, and uh, you know, some of you know our, our family are big Packer fans, so it was a real treat for us. We got to go to the Packer game. They gave us tickets for the game, and it was really neat. Well, you know, one of my favorite things when I've had the chance to go to Lambeau Field is uh, when you walk around the atrium of Lambeau Field, which is open to the public, it's, it's sort of like a museum to the history of the NFL and the Green Bay Packers. And, and it's just filled with these neat displays uh, highlighting key events in the history of both the NFL and the, nation, uh, and the Green Bay Packers. And one of the displays we came across when we were walking through uh, Lambeau Field was this picture which is uh, a tribute there at Lambeau Field to the most famous play in Green Bay Packer history. This play was known as Vince Lombardi's Packer Sweep. How many of you ever heard of the Packer Sweep before? Okay. Now, the Green Bay Packers, if you know anything about the Packers, they dominated professional football during the 1960s. And much of their success can be attributed to this simple play called the Packer Sweep. Now there was really nothing flashy about it. It was a pretty simple, basic play. Basically, all it required was each player to execute the duties of their position to the best of their abilities, and uh, and the thing would run smoothly. And basically, all it was: the quarterback would get the hand, off, get the ball, he'd hand it off to the running back, and then two of the offensive linemen, the guard and the tackle, would run around the end of the line of scrimmage, and they would create a seam in the defense. And Vince Lombardi would tell the running back, when they saw that alley there, to run to daylight. Now, it's a basic play. In fact, it's a play that's run in youth football leagues all over the country today. There's nothing special about it. But it became the foundation of five world championships, including the first two Super Bowls. And you see, the reason was is because Vince Lombardi knew that if we practiced the fundamentals, if we practice the basics and we carry the basics out to such a high level that even though the other team knew what was coming, they wouldn't be able to stop it. And more often than not, that held true. Vince Lombardi, he once said about this play, he said, there's nothing spectacular about it. It's just a yard gainer. It just works. A simple, basic play That just works. And you know, friends, sometimes it's the simple things that are the most effective. And today, as we wrap up our series in the book of Titus, we're going to see that this principle holds true for our faith as well. Today, we're going to explore one of Paul's most basic commands found throughout the book of Titus. And just like Vince Lombardi's famous Packer sweep, there's nothing spectacular about this command. It's just one of God's yard gainers for the Christian faith. It just works. In fact, the command we're going to look at today is so basic, so elementary, that many of us just skip right over it when we come across it in Scripture. And it's a shame because in the life of faith, like in football or really anything else, it's really the fundamentals, the basics, that make a difference. Both in our lives as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness, but also as we seek to reach out to others with the hope of the gospel. And so today, friends, we're going to focus on this simple command that we so often take for granted. One commentator I read this week said said that this one command summarizes all the others in the book of Titus. In fact, Paul highlights it seven times throughout this short letter, three times. In this final chapter alone, this simple yet profound command can be found in two one-syllable words, do good, do good. Let's read our passage for today and as we do, I want you to pay attention for this simple yet often overlooked command to do good. Take a look with me at Titus chapter 3. Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, friends, I know that there's a lot here in this passage of Scripture. But did you catch that simple command? Three times here in chapter 3, Paul admonishes followers of Jesus Christ. Do good. Do good. Now notice here, friends, this charge to do good this wasn't a suggestion by the Apostle Paul. It wasn't like Paul just says, oh, and by the way, if you happen to do some good in your lives, that'd be great, right? No, not at all. Paul is saying here, if you read any of the seven references in Titus to doing good, all of them are given as direct commands, as reminders to the believers in creed of one of our fundamental callings. Paul is saying to us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Your life should be characterized by doing good. And the reality is, friends, and this leads me to principle number one today, not only are we as believers called to do good, but God has told us that we've been intentionally saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because he has a specific plan for his people to do good. We've been saved to do good. Did you know that? Did you know that God has a plan for you to do good? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, God has a specific plan for you to do good for his glory. Now friends, if you don't believe me, I can prove it to you. Take a look with me if you will at the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Here the apostle Paul tells us, "For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do." Wow. That's an incredible verse. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, Paul says you're a part of God's eternal plan. You've been saved and made a new creation by Jesus to do good works for the glory of God. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're struggling, maybe wondering if your life has any real meaning or purpose, whether you have any real value, My friends, let me tell you, your life is of ultimate value. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, your life has tremendous value. You're a part of God's eternal plan to display his glory to the world through a life of doing good. Wow, what a calling, what a privilege. Now that's our calling as believers. We've been saved to do good for the glory of God. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to do good? A couple years ago, I remember my wife and I, we were downstairs at our house watching TV and All of a sudden we heard our kids upstairs, uh, everything just blew up and I was crying and screaming, you know, and and, uh, apparently Caleb and Addie, they had been playing Legos and Addie had taken one of Caleb's Legos and Caleb had hit Addie and she started crying and he started crying and I remember Kim and I, we go marching upstairs and Kim, in her frustration, she says to Caleb, she says, Caleb, just be good, just do the right thing. And Caleb, who was five years old at the time, he was crying and I remember he looked up at Kim and he said, but I don't know what that is. (laughs) You know, friends, Caleb was right that day. Sometimes we as parents assume our kids should just know how they're supposed to behave. But how are they supposed to know what's right and good unless they're instructed? Unless they have an example to follow? You know, something the same holds true for us as believers. We've been saved to do good. We're called to do good. But what is good? Don't we too need instruction? Don't we too need some example to follow? Absolutely. And Paul understood this as well. And this is why Paul repeatedly points believers back to our ultimate guide for knowing and doing, for knowing what is good our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Some of you might remember a few years ago, there was this big fad that swept through the church. Uh, Christians all over the country were wearing these little rubber bracelets with four letters stamped into them. You remember what those letters were? WWJD, right? What did WWJD stand for? What would Jesus do? How many of you had a WWJD bracelet, right? I bet a bunch of you had them at one time or another, right? Now, WWJD stood for what would Jesus do? And the idea behind these simple bracelets was if we just kept this slogan at the forefront of our mind as we went throughout the day, if we just thought to ourselves, you know, what would Jesus do? That we would do the right thing, that we would honor God with our lives if we just kept that at the forefront of our minds. But, you know, the problem is, friends, a lot of people didn't know what Jesus would do, right? Right? They didn't know how Jesus would have lived. I remember, in fact, I was watching a late night talk show one time, time, and there was a comedian on that night, and he was talking about how all of his Christian friends were wearing these WWJD bracelets. And this comedian, he says, you know, they're always telling me, you know, what would Jesus do? And he said, how should I know what Jesus would do? I haven't been to church since I was five years old. Right? I mean, what would Jesus do? A couple weeks ago when we were on vacation, we went into this t-shirt shop and I saw this t-shirt. It had a picture of Jesus on a hang glider and it said, what wouldn't Jesus do? (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny, right? But friends, you know, while the premise behind the WWJD bracelets was a good one, I would suggest that a more helpful slogan for us to pursue would be WDJT, what did Jesus teach? Because Jesus taught and instructed us much on God's will for our lives, on knowing and doing what is good in the eyes of God for the glory of God. Now, obviously, Jesus taught far too much on the topic of doing good for us to cover it all here this morning. However, I'd like to suggest for you that we can find a summary of all Jesus taught on this subject in one brief passage of Scripture. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 13, where Jesus instructs his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Let's read this together. John 15, 9 through 13. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Friends, here in this passage, Jesus has boiled down for us the essence of what it means to do good. And he does so in two commands. He says, number one, remain in my love. And number two, love each other. Friends, to do good as a believer, as God created us and called us to do, is to remain in Christ's love, meaning that we make our relationship with him the top priority in our lives, and then to love one another. In other words, friends, to do good in God's eyes is to love God wholly and to love others sacrificially. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. Remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What did Jesus reply? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he said the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, God has called us to do good. And what is the good we're called to do? Love God and love others. That's it. That's the good life. Friends, the Christian life isn't rocket science. God's kept it pretty simple for us. He says do good. Make our relationship the top priority in your life and then love and serve others. Now, what's really cool about God's command to do good, when we make our relationship with him and loving others, the motivating and driving influences in our lives, this radically changes everything about us. And I cannot overstate this, friends. The more we seek to do good, to love God wholly, and to love others sacrificially, the more we ourselves become transformed. We become a whole new kind of person. Pastor Rick highlighted this transformation for us last week in Titus chapter 2. Take a look again at the kind of person we can become. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, what is good? Friends, that's the good life right there. A transformed life that increasingly says no to ungodliness and worldly passions. A life that's marked by self-control and a growing hunger to do what is good. Last week when our family was at the Packer game at Lambeau Field, we witnessed a couple of sad situations where we saw pretty clearly the contrast between the good life, the life that God has called us to, and the life still enslaved by sin. We were sitting there in Lambeau Field waiting for the game to start. We were watching the players practice, and people were filling the stands, and all of a sudden these four college students came and sat down in front of us. It was three guys and one girl, and and right away when they sat down, we could tell that there was some kind of tension between them. You see, the the girl with them was wearing a Seattle Seahawks jersey. And the three guys were wearing Packer jerseys, and one of the guys was this girl's boyfriend. And right away, these guys were ripping on this girl for wearing a Seahawks jersey. I mean, just just viciously attacking her, degrading her for wearing a Seahawks jersey. Who do you think you are wearing a Seahawks jersey in Lambeau Field? I mean, how stupid can you be? I mean, just saying nasty things to this girl. And these guys, as the game went on, you know, they were drinking some beers and the more they drank, the more their attacks on this girl got more and more vicious. I mean, it was really sad and ugly. And eventually this girl, she started crying and she got up and walked out of the stadium. And even my daughter Addie, six-year-old Addie, she looked at me and she said, Daddy, why are they being so mean to that girl? After the girl left, the two guys started ganging up on the boyfriend. How can you date somebody wearing a Seahawks jersey? I I mean, it was just, it was pathetic. It was so sad, all because of a stupid jersey. It was really sad. And then across the aisle from us, there was this other guy. He was an older gentleman, and he had come to the game with his adult adult kids, and the whole game, these guys are sitting there drinking beer. And I mean, he must have had about six, seven, eight beers by halftime. And the more this guy drank, the more belligerent he became. And he was shouting out obscenities. I mean, the whole stadium could hear this guy. Shouting up obscenities at the referees. I mean, it was a preseason game for Pete's sake. And then he's kicking his beer bottles under the chair in front of him. I mean, just being rude and inconsiderate. And you know, some friends, I remember sitting there thinking as I observed these people around me and having been recently meditating on this scripture here in Titus. I just had this overwhelming sense of sadness, thinking about how lost these people were. They were totally missing out on the good life that God has for them, and they didn't even know it. It was really sad. Now you know something, friends, it was right for me to feel a sense of godly sorrow for these people. We should mourn for the lost in our world, and we should notice the difference that the good life makes in our lives as believers but you know as I sat there something interesting happened and I didn't even realize it until later but as I sat there for a while thinking about these folks sitting around me and just sort of dwelling on how sad of a scene it was pretty soon my sadness gave way to a judgmental spirit and I'm ashamed to admit it but I began thinking how much better my life must be and how much better I was compared to these people sitting around me. And you know, all of a sudden it was like the Holy Spirit pulled up a seat right next to me there in Lambeau Field. And he whispered in my ear and he said, Jason, you were just like them. You were just like them. And I remember as soon as this thought came into my mind. I grabbed my phone and I pulled up Titus 3 on my Bible app. And it was like God directed my attention to verses 3 through 5. And I read, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. You know, right then, as I read those verses, God just pricked my heart. And I remember thinking, Jason, without Jesus, you'd probably be doing the very same things. And then I realized, here I am. And I know Jesus. And I know the good life that God has called us to. And yet my attitude right now sure isn't very loving. And God convicted me, and I realized that I needed to repent. And I did. And you know something, friends? What that situation reminded me of is how easy it can be for those of us who've been saved, who know the good life, to fall into a judgmental spirit towards the lost. Even as transformed people who know and live out our calling to do good, we still have this remnant of our sin nature at work within us. And this is why Paul gives us this important reminder here in Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. In fact, I think God inspired Paul with these words just to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of self-righteous judgmentalism towards the lost. God wanted to remind us here very clearly that while we've been transformed and saved to do good, We've been saved by his good, not by ours. Let's read this section together as we look at principle number two this morning. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have this great privilege of being saved to do good for the glory of God. But we must also never forget that as we grow and as we're transformed, It's only by the grace of God. It's God who has saved us to the good life. We had nothing to do with it. And the reality is, friends, apart from the grace of God, I'm going to say something. We all stink. You stink. I stink. We all stink. Now, I know that might sound pretty harsh, but it's the truth. If you don't believe me, it's the truth, go ahead and smell the person sitting next to you. I'm serious. Go ahead. Smell the person sitting next to you. Do it. Take a big whiff. Go ahead, Pat. Smell him. Come on. Take a big whiff. What do you smell? I'll tell you what you smell. You either smell that person's stink, or you smell something covering up their stink. Right? I mean, but we all stink. It's our nature. We stink. And friends, not only do we stink physically, but more seriously is the reality that we stink spiritually. Paul tells us in Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, friends, this is our problem. We reek of our sin. We reek of our rebellion against God. As Paul reminds us here, We reek of our worldly passions, of malice, of envy, of hatred. Friends, we've got serious stink issues. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'm telling you this morning, this whole place would just stink to high heaven. But the good news today is this. God has saved us. He saved us. Romans 6.23 tells us that while the wages of our sin are stink, is death the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3:16 tells us that God so loved this stinky world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Titus three: four through7 says that he saved us not because of righteous things we have done. But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Friends, he saved us. When we were on vacation last week up in Door County, we went and visited this famous beach called Schoolhouse Beach. I got a picture of it for you here this morning. Schoolhouse Beach, spectacular beach. It's one of only five beaches in the world just like it. It's a limestone beach, a beach of limestone rocks. that stretches for a couple miles. And these limestone rocks are just brilliant white. And they're perfectly rounded and smooth. I mean, they're just beautiful, perfectly smooth limestone rocks, brilliant white, smooth as a baby's bottom. It's incredible, and it stretches on for miles. What I found interesting, though, as we hiked along this beach, if you just go up shore from the beach, you'll find these very same limestone rocks. Except the limestone rocks just up the shore are rough and sharp and jagged. And what's the difference between those rocks and the rocks down by the water? They're the same rocks, same limestone. Friends, the difference is is the rocks down on the shoreline, have been washed. They've been made new by the power of the water and the waves. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. God has saved us, friends. He's washed away our stink. Paul says here in Titus chapter 3 that by the grace of God, through the work of Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been washed We've been reborn and we've been made new so that we can know and live the good life that he's called us to. It's all because of him. We owe it all to Jesus. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. Have you been washed and made new? Are you living the good life that God has called us to? or are you still covered in the stink of your sin? If you'd like to know this morning with absolute certainty that God has washed away your stink, that your sins have been forgiven, all you need to do is call out to the Lord and acknowledge your need for him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 John 1:9, says that if we confess our sins, if we confess and admit our stink, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive us of our stink and he'll purify us of all unrighteousness. Friends, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, God washes us and he makes us new just like those limestone rocks at Schoolhouse Beach. The power of Jesus Christ comes upon us and through his Holy Spirit he washes us and he purifies us and he begins the work of transforming us, smoothing out all the rough edges in our lives to make us a new creation. And as we saw earlier in Ephesians 2.10, we then experience the privilege of becoming part of God's eternal plan to do good for his glory. And you know something, friends, I'll tell you, there's nothing greater than living the good life. If you haven't yet, let Jesus wash away your stink today and know with certainty that you've been transformed. You'll never regret it. Now lastly this morning, and I'll keep it brief, principle number three. As Christians, we've been saved to do good. We've been saved by his good, not ours. And principle number three this morning is this. Paul reminds us that we've been saved for the ultimate good. Take a look at Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul says here of doing good, he says these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Remember, what is doing good? Loving God holy making our relationship with him the dominant priority in our lives, and then loving others sacrificially. Paul says here that these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. How so? Well, friends, remember what Jesus instructed us in Matthew 5, 16. Jesus said, "...in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds." And glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, this is our calling as believers. This is why we've been saved to do good. We've been saved to do good by His good for the ultimate good. And what is the ultimate good? The ultimate good is the hope that through our lives, as people see the difference that Jesus has made in our lives, as we do good to bring glory to God, we hope and we pray that they would want that for themselves. This is what it's all about. And this is why the command we began this morning with is so important. As basic as it is, do good. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love others as yourself. And friends, as we do this, as we live the good life, we will be increasingly transformed. We'll become more like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more our lights will shine to the world around us. And I'll tell you something, friends. In an increasingly dark world, The light of Jesus is a very attractive thing. And so again, I affirm Paul's challenge. And I close this message this morning by repeating Paul's challenge to you, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Do good. Let your light shine. Do good for the glory of God. Do good so that others might see the difference Jesus makes in our lives. Do good so that the world can see what Jesus can do for our marriages and our families. Do good so that your friends might know there's more to live for than the shallow offerings of this fallen world. Do good in the hope of having opportunities to share the life transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, do good. Do good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words in the book of Titus. We thank you for what Paul has given us here through the power of your Holy Spirit to inspire us, to challenge us, to encourage us. And Lord, today we conclude this series with a powerful admonition, the call to do good. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. Saved us to this incredible calling of displaying your glory to the world around us and the difference that a life with Jesus Christ can make. And we thank you, Lord, that you saved us not because of anything that we had done, but, Lord, you saved us wholly and purely because of your great love for us. Saved not of our works, but through your good works. In your sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for that and for the privilege you've given us now to live for you, for your glory. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who may not know that their sins have been washed and cleansed and forgiven, if there's anybody here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know if... Your spirit has begun that purifying work of rounding all the rough edges off of their lives. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning who needs to put their hope in you for the very first time, I just pray that right now, right there in the quiet of their own heart, they might just say a simple prayer. That they might confess their sins and say, Jesus, I need you. Be my savior. I want you to be the Lord of my life. God promises when we confess our sins that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us and bring us into the good life. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Lord, help us live faithfully to honor you. Let our light shine brilliantly, Lord, brightly so that the world around us might know that Jesus lives in us and that there's something very special about the good life, living for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen.